how many of you would uh, raise your hand and say that you have people on your shopping list that are hard to buy for? I don't know what your deal is. <laughs> no, um, my father is one of those people that it's hard to buy for. A, a relationship with the Lord, work, family, that's kind of it. Uh, no hobbies, doesn't collect anything. I haven't lived in the house for 20 years, so I'm, I'm not really sure what he's into. Uh, this week, last week, uh, those, those kinds of things, hard to buy for. So this year, he asked for a special shampoo for Christmas. So he's getting shampoo from us. Um, if you get something from us, a nice card or something, trust that that came from Nicole and not from me. I get my dad shampoo. In even sending that to him, there's this awareness that that doesn't really seem to say thank you for 38 years of patient, faithful, loving parenting. Uh, That shampoo doesn't totally convey, I love you, uh, dad. And so we have these people that are sometimes hard to shop for. We're not sure what they want. And I wonder if for some of us there's ambiguity or confusion about what Jesus wants. We're celebrating Jesus this morning. What does Jesus want? Does he just want us to say Merry Christmas as many times as we can possibly say it over uh, the Christmas holiday season? Uh, Does he just want to be celebrated? Make sure you're at church on a Sunday because it's Easter or Christmas or or be there at Christmas Eve because it's a special time. Uh, Celebrate, get together as family. What does what does he want? What does Jesus want? And so we're going to start in Luke chapter one. We're going to read about the angel coming to Mary and this announcement of something that's really extraordinary that's going to happen to her. And then we're going to move over to Matthew eight and just kind of talk a little bit about uh, what we see from some of Jesus' miracles and interaction with this particular Roman centurion that might lead us to more clarity about what Jesus wants. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Luke 1. I'll start in verse 26. This is the account of the angel coming to Mary. Start in Luke 1, starting in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, to the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So that's where we start this description of the child, right? Holy, Son of God, King of the throne of David forever, ruler over the descendants of Jacob, ruler over God's people forever, Holy, Son of God. God. And so somehow we've gone from Christmas being what God has done in Jesus to what, what we want from God uh, now. Uh, and so we're going to go into Matthew 8, which is 
where we've been as a church the last few months and, and really try to unpack this question. If we've deviated from the original purpose of Christmas, if culture at large has deviated from celebrating that Jesus is the Son of God, the King forever, the ruler of his people forever and ever, eternal King, uh, how do we get back to what Jesus wants? Uh, Matthew 8 is a great place uh, to do that. Uh, I'm going to read verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. And I want us to see as we start that Jesus, baby Jesus, came for outsiders. Jesus, with his ministry, offers grace uh, to outsiders. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5. It says, When he entered Capernaum, which is basically home base for Jesus' ministry and life, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and I will heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to even have you come under my roof. Uh, Luke 7 as a parallel account of what is being described here in Matthew chapter 8. And Luke adds additional information telling us that this Roman centurion sent messengers to Jesus first before this encounter happens. The messengers come to Jesus. They get to Jesus and they say, phew, we found you, Jesus. Finally, we've been looking for you. Then they rattle off all these good things that the centurion has done, basically trying to say, this is a really good man, Jesus. He's done a lot of good things. He deserves to have you come and do this good thing for him. Jesus, come on. I mean, they are in full-on sales pitch mode. It talks about the centurion having helped build a synagogue, that the centurion was kind to the Jewish people. And so Jesus hears all of these things and Jesus stops what he's doing, drops everything, and he follows these servants towards where the centurion lives. Now, pause for a minute. Who is this Roman centurion? He is not a Jew, okay? He is a Gentile. So despite the fact that he's done a lot of quote-unquote spiritual things, a lot of good things, a lot of generous things, a lot of kind things. He's done spiritual good things, but he knows crystal clear that he is still a spiritual outsider. He says to Jesus, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Despite the spiritual things that he's done, he knows he's a spiritual outsider. And asking Jesus to come means that Jesus is going to be criticized uh, by his peers, that Jesus will be looked upon disapprovingly. He'll have all the fingers of all the religious people pointing at him. How dare you? Because remember, the Gentiles were the outcasts. Gentiles were the impure blemish in the religious system. If you're a parent with kids, the Gentiles are the ones who who you said, kids, you stay away from them. You don't go to their house. You don't play with them at recess. Stay away. And so Jesus ignores the cultural stereotypes of Applied to this man and to his people, saying that his his purpose is bigger than culture's stereotypes of this man, and he goes with the man. So, do you see that Jesus gives grace? Jesus is attentive. Jesus wants to help. Jesus drops everything to help this man who is clearly and is aware of it a spiritual outsider. And I think we want to camp there on that outsider word because many of us in a number of ways feel like spiritual outsiders. Uh, Maybe you feel the eyes, the disapproving eyes of other people every day. You know that your life hasn't 
measured up. And if people knew what they didn't know about you, then they'd be sure that your life doesn't measure up. But you don't feel like you measure up to yourself, to others, to God. If you're here this morning and you feel like God's forgiveness is for people who are better than you, I want to tell you this morning that his forgiveness is available to outsiders. If you're here and you're feeling like his good plans, his good purposes, this ideal thing that he's created you for, that you've been disqualified from that, I want to tell you that your past doesn't disqualify you from the future that God wants for you. He invites outsiders to become insiders and he invites insiders to be a part of his work. If you're here feeling like a relationship with God, his presence in your life is something that could never happen to you. I want you to see from Matthew 8 that Jesus gives grace to, is attentive to, hears the cries of, drops everything to help this religious outsider. And so our recognition of our need, our awareness that we're outsiders doesn't deter his hand. It attracts, it brings his corrective hand, his helpful hand, his power to us. It's a pattern. In fact, in Luke 2, or in Luke 5, later on in the chapter, Jesus says, in talking with uh, some folks, he says, it is, is it not the healthy who need a doctor? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, he says, but it's the sick. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for all people, not some people all people. And we see that here as he gives grace to this outsider, dropping everything uh, to go with him. So first point, Jesus offers grace to outsiders. Uh, Second, this morning, uh, faith in Jesus makes hope possible no matter what your circumstances or situations. Uh, let's, let's pick it up and see how that plays itself out with this man and this sick servant in Matthew 8, uh, picking it up in verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes to my servant. Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, there is no one in Israel, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The centurion is a powerful man, but in this moment he recognizes how powerless he is. The centurion is a man with authority and influence, but in this moment with the sickness of his servant, he recognizes how limited his authority and how limited his influence is. Uh, The centurion is is a commander over maybe a hundred people. He's a man with resources, but in this moment he recognizes how useless his resources are to do what he most wants. And so for all of us, there's going to come a season, a point, a moment in life where we are going to recognize that the authority, the power, the influence, uh, the resources we thought we had are insufficient to do what we need most. Where are you going to turn? When you come to that point, where are you going to turn when your kid is sick and the doctors don't know what to do? Where are you going to turn when you're out of work and the creditors are calling and you've got nothing? Where are you going to turn when the weight of carrying baggage, when the weight of carrying past choices, the weight of carrying sin becomes so burdensome that you feel like you can't carry it one more day? Where are you going to turn? 
we like to go ha- hiking, and my youngest son just bolts on in front of us. He must be first. I don't know if, if you have kids that, that have to be first. He has to be first. He runs way in front of us. Um, but you know what he does when the road gets steep or when the path gets steep or if it gets a little scary? He doesn't run ahead. You know what he does? Turns around and he runs back. And you know what he wants? Right here. He wants to be on my shoulders. He wants to be carried. When it gets scary, when the path gets steep, he wants to be carried. You know what's a really nice way to hike? Someone carrying you. Sitting on someone's <laughs> shoulders. The question that we want to ask is where do we turn when the journey of life gets steep and gets a little scary? Do you have someone to turn to? It's a sweet place to be when you recognize that every day the journey of life is too steep for you and you say to the Father, carry me, and he carries you day in and day out. Where do you turn? The centurion shows us that faith in God means hope is possible no matter what our circumstances are, and it's significant that Matthew, the writer of this gospel, Um, surrounds this particular story with other accounts of Jesus' power, other accounts of Jesus healing sick people, showing Jesus' power over our bodies. Uh, This this includes the account where Jesus calms the storm, showing Jesus' power over the natural world. This includes the account where Jesus heals some and casts out some demons from oppressed men, showing Jesus' power over the natural world, or the supernatural world. The point is, is we can have hope in Jesus, in all circumstances, because Jesus alone has power over all circumstances. Then Jesus marvels at this man's faith. He marvels at the Gentile's faith. He marvels at the centurion's faith. One of two times that we see Jesus marveling in Scripture, and the other one is a negative instance. Jesus marvels at his faith and says, I haven't seen, comparatively, I haven't seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. What is it that Jesus wants of us? Faith. What is it that he marvels at here? Faith. What is it that he praises and commends? Faith. What is faith? Isn't it our our hearts and our heads uh, aligning with the outcome, being believing and following Jesus? And it just sort of overflows. It spills over into very simple obedience, very daily uh, obedience, a very simple act of following how do we see that in the centurion's life? How do we see faith? First of all, the centurion comes and says, I'm not worthy. I, I know that I'm a powerful man, but your power is much greater than mine. I have authority, but your authority is, we're, we're not the same. Your authority is greater than mine. Uh, often, faith is preceded by an increasing clarity of who Jesus is and who we are not. What he has, what he possesses, and what we lack. And the centurion is just crystal clear. Jesus possesses the power to heal his servant. The centurion does not possess the power to heal the servant. The centurion has authority and rule. Jesus has infinitely more authority and rule. We don't know the degree to which the centurion understood who Jesus was and the full plan of God. And Jesus as the son of God, but based on what he knows, he runs to Jesus with everything he has. Trusting Jesus can do for him what he cannot do for himself. Faith is belief in action. It's our head and our heart aligning to follow Jesus. It's a relationship with Jesus, and the overflow is simple obedience. Simple obedience leads this man to say, I can't fix this. Jesus, will you? 
Simple obedience leads this powerful man to say, I can't, Jesus, you can. And he says, Jesus, if you say it, I believe it, and I'll see it. If you say it, Jesus, I'll believe it, and I see it. He says, I have authority. I tell people what to do, and they do it. Jesus, I get it. You are one with great authority. Just say the word. I don't even deserve to have you come in my home. Just say the word, and it will be. And Jesus stops, and he marvels, and he says, I have not found faith like this with anyone in all of Israel. Uh, The Bible says a lot about faith, and and so uh, I want to um, turn to Hebrews 11, passage that says much about faith. It's often called the uh, faith hero of uh, Wall of Fame, Hall of Fame. There it is, Canton, Ohio, Hall of Fame. Um, And Abraham features prominently in this chapter, and so I just want to grab a few verses that talk about Abraham's life as an example of what faith might look like in our lives. How do we put flesh on what it means to have faith, to have head and heart aligned, to believe and to follow Jesus? And, and so the first one that we'll look at is Hebrews eleven eight, and, and what we see here is that faith in God gives Abraham a hope uh, in the midst of great confusion uh, so God is going to call Abraham. He's going to say, hey, Abraham, we got this really cool thing I'm going to do. Uh, why don't you come and let's go, and, and I'm going to take you to this place. So I'm not going to tell you where we're going. I just want you to go. Uh, and so you, as you might imagine, Abraham has tons and tons of questions, um, but he obeys despite uh, unanswered questions. He obeys despite not knowing where he's going. He obeys uh, despite not having, not being sure, not being, not knowing uh, what God is doing. Hebrews 11.8 says this. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Faith in God, trusting that God knew where he was going, even if Abraham didn't, trusting that God was good, even if Abraham didn't know the plan, allows Abraham, head and heart, belief and action to follow to obey a simple obedience just saying yes to what god puts in front of you allows abraham to obey in spite of not knowing where he's going in spite of great confusion wouldn't we love in life with the lord and uh, in all other aspects to be able to follow the lord and go forward in life even when we don't know where we're headed even when we're not sure what god's doing even when we're greatly confused how many of us faith, life just comes to a standstill when we don't get all the answers that when we, we want. And when we don't know exactly what God's doing, why, how long he's going to do something for, and what the outcome is going to be. We just seem to get stuck in quicksand and we're paralyzed. Wouldn't it be great if we could move forward? Wouldn't it be great if we had someone to trust in? Wouldn't it be great if our confidence didn't wane just because we weren't sure what God was doing? Abraham moves forward by faith amidst confusion. Uh, second, faith in God gives Abraham hope in the midst of great discouragement. Hebrews 11, uh, 9 and 10, God has said, hey, Abraham, I've got this great land for you, this amazing inheritance. Part of that inheritance is land. And then Abraham has to live for a very long time without taking hold of what God said would be his. Uh, verses 9 and 10 from 11. It says, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, he 
wasn't able to take hold of yet fully what God had promised him, what God had given to him. And so, wouldn't it be an extraordinary thing if in the midst of great discouragement we would not quit, not freak out, not get scared, and we could continue to follow, continue on the path that God has us on. Uh, Faith gives Abraham spiritual stamina. Really amazing thing, and if you're going to watch college football this week, you're going to watch maybe a team get into the fourth quarter, and they're going to get really tired. And because they're going to get really tired, their offense is going to start to be sloppy, and their defense is going to start to be sloppy. And the things that they were doing well at the beginning of the game, they're not going to be able to do well at the end of the game, and they will probably lose the game if their endurance, if their stamina is not better than their opponent. They will probably lose the game. Faith in God gives Abraham spiritual stamina to stay the course even when there's significant discouragement. So many of you have enormous things in your life, so many enormous things in our lives where discouragement is weighing us down um, in just massive ways. Wouldn't you like to have someone to hand that to? Wouldn't you like to have someone who's carrying that for you? Abraham, by trusting in God, by placing his faith in God, that God was good in spite of what he saw that was discouraging, that God had a plan in spite of what he saw that appeared to him like God had forgotten him or that God was not able to or would not come through uh, with what he promised. By faith, Abraham had hope in the midst of discouragement. Last, from Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, uh, this is that story where God comes to Isaac, I think it's Genesis 22 around there, and, and God says... Uh, Sorry, to Abraham, hey Abraham, your son, remember Isaac, he's the one, he's the child of promise, he's the one who all of the blessings are going to flow to and flow through, Uh, he is this offspring, Abraham, that I have promised you, the first of many, 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 many descendants, Uh, and then later God comes to Abraham and says, hey Abraham, remember that guy, remember Isaac, yeah, I know, your your one and only son, Uh, I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. So what God asks Abraham to do is enormously challenging. What God asks him to do is must appear to Abraham to be absolutely senseless. Like Abraham can't possibly get his mind around what God, why God has asked him to do this. Uh, And Abraham, by faith, is able to navigate what seems like a major setback so that God's work can continue in him. Uh, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, Abraham, considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so Abraham hears this receives this ask of the Lord, this command of the Lord. Abraham follows through. God, of course, intervenes and does not allow him to offer his son uh, up as a sacrifice. And then God, immediately after, reinforces all of the good things that God was doing, is doing, and would do in the future. His supernatural work in and through uh, Abraham after this great event. Don't we want our lives to matter for something so much bigger than ourselves? Don't we want our lives, when we look back on them, 
to be marked by supernatural things rather than natural things, by things God did, not by things that, that we did. I don't think we're going to look back in 20 years, 30 years, and 40 years and remember a, a job promotion or some sort of accomplishment and go, that was, that was really like a highlight uh, of my life. I think what we're going to remember is how and when and where and in what ways did we see God do supernatural things in and through us. Those are the anchoring points that we're going to look back and praise him for. Those are going to things that we're going to look back and just remember the enormous grace and the significance of, of what he did in and through us. And uh, some of you might be like me. Um, hopefully you're not, but uh, I, I'm, I'm not a risk taker. I, I run from risk. I see it a thousand miles ahead. I've got like a telescope up all day long looking for risk, calculating risk, and deviating from anything that might lead toward risk. I'm more predisposed for planning and more predisposed for control, which is the opposite uh, of faith. And so if I want my life to be marked by what God's done, not by what I've done, to be marked by supernatural things, not by natural things, it's going to take faith. It's going to take me trusting God enough that I don't freak out and quit and get scared when he asks me to do something that doesn't make sense. It's going to require a simple obedience. Uh, Yes, Lord. I don't know where I'm going. Yes, Lord. God, this is taking a really long time. Yes, Lord. God, why would you ask me to do this? Why would you allow this to happen? Why would you put me in this situation? Yes, Lord. Where we focus more on what God has asked us to do rather than obsessing about what he hasn't yet explained to us. Jesus gives grace to outsiders. We can have hope. Jesus makes faith. Jesus makes hope possible. Finally, salvation is available to all. Our third and final point from Matthew 8, 11 through 13. Uh, salvation is available to all. Those who know they're outsiders and those who will one day know they're outsiders. Uh, Matthew 8, 11 through 13. Kind of an interesting way to finish this section. That's what Jesus says. I tell you, Many will come from the east and the west and will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Translation, when Jesus returns, the eternal celebration, the eternal feast forever in the kingdom of heaven, uh, people will be gathered from the four corners of the world. All those who uh, had died, who were still alive, everyone is gathered. Celebration uh, of the feast, verse 12. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus finishes this section, and then the centurion says, uh, go, let it be done, for as you have believed, and the servant was healed at that very moment. So Jesus comes through, does exactly what he said he was going to do, speaks it into being, doesn't ever get to the house, doesn't need to get to the house. Jesus has power over time, power over space, can heal from afar, can heal close up. Um, But Jesus looks at his crowd, looks at uh, his followers. He's got this uh, centurion here and his followers here. Uh, Jesus says, I have not found faith in all of Israel like this. Then he says, many will be part of the, the feast in the kingdom of God, the eternal celebration, the 
eternal feast, eternally in the presence of God. Many will be a part of that, but there will be some on that day, verse 12 says, who will think they're in and will be exposed as frauds. So as Jesus is talking about faith, he's looking at his followers saying some who think they're in will be exposed as fraud, as frauds. In other words, faith is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Having our head and our heart aligned to where we believe and we follow Jesus that overflows in a simple obedience is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so one of the things that's kind of interesting Whenever we talk about heaven and whenever we talk about hell and and Jesus here in verse 12 uh, talks about being cast out into eternal torment where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds awful. The picture is awful. Sometimes we think that's so harsh. And the reason often that our reaction is, wow, that is so harsh is because we're hardwired to diminish or to minimize the sinfulness of our sin. We're hardwired. Our predisposition is to minimize the sinfulness of our sin. In other words, uh, we might say, uh, yeah, I made a few wrong choices, but I'm not a bad person. I'm just a few good choices from riding the ship. Yeah, I've missed God's mark, but I am so much better than that person. I've missed God's mark, but I'm so much better than my brother. Like, I'll tell you, I miss God's mark, but I'm so much better uh, than my neighbor. And, and so I was kind of th- thinking about this. Uh, And the picture that I kind of had was a a 16-year-old, and maybe some of you have 16-year-olds now who are getting their license. Maybe some of you did that recently. Maybe that causes PTSD for some of you. I don't know what your experience was. Um, But I imagine a 16-year-old getting his or her license, getting the keys to the car, heading out, doing whatever it is that they're going to do, uh, getting on the freeway, going fast, passing a friend of yours, maybe going 100 or so, 110. They get home, flip you the keys, you know, how, you get gross, do you get everything I asked at Fred Meyer? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, you get a call from your friend saying, hey, I, I think your blazer went past me. I couldn't really tell because it was going so fast. Um, you know, were you in a hurry? What happened? You're livid, right? Uh, you take away your son or daughter's keys. You take away everything from your son or daughter probably at, at that point. And they might not understand what they did wrong. Nobody got hurt. I didn't get a ticket. I didn't get into a crash. And they might say those horrific words that we hate. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? No one got hurt. I didn't get a ticket. There was no crash. I didn't hit anyone. What's the big deal? And so the problem is, is for many of us, when it comes to our sin, we look at God and we say, God, what's the big deal? deal. We don't understand that the Bible talks about us, describes us apart from Christ as enemies uh, of God who he's given lavishly to and we like spoiled kids at Christmas just want more and more and more. We don't get that it was our sin that made it necessary if we were ever going to be restored to God that God would send Jesus and Jesus would suffer and he would die and he didn't just do that for some people, he did that for all people. He didn't just do that uh, for some, he did that for all that baby jesus was part of the father's plan to come and make us spiritually dead people alive to restore us who were far from god an impossible chasm to overcome impossibly far from god to restore us to make us close to bring god close to us sin in the bible means something must die Jesus died in our place, and in that way, we are freed from sin's power over us. 
Sin means we can't be in God's holy presence because he's holy and we are not. And what place can darkness have with light? Jesus took that upon himself. His righteousness gets gets credited to our spiritual bank account so that when the Father sees us, his mercy remains intact. He's not like an enabling parent who just lets kids get away with anything. His mercy remains intact. As Jesus takes the punishment we deserve, his righteousness gets transferred to our account so that when the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And in that way, we are restored to proximity. We are restored to relationship. We are restored to him. And what does he ask of us? The faith of the centurion who simply says, I believe it. If you say it, I'll see it. And it overflows in simple obedience. Uh, I was thinking about what it means to have simple obedience this week because um, we tend to like to think of obedience as being extravagant and the outcome being something that brings uh, recognition or notoriety in some way, shape, or form. And uh, the person that I thought of that sort of best captured uh, simple obedience was a, was a friend that I had, and he spoke in a heavy accent, so you could hardly understand what he said. So if there was something that was uh, well-articulated, you only got every third word, uh, so you, you didn't get it. Um, I don't know what he did for a living. I know he didn't have any uh, fancy title. I know he was always asking for prayer for his work uh, because he was always required to work uh, long hours. He never really had seemed to have anything to show for it. Um, so doesn't seem to be anything spectacular about what he did, about where he worked, about the title that he had there. Uh, what was interesting, though, is the only thing that I know about his work is that in some way, shape, or form, he interacted with truck drivers. And the reason that I know that is because he would always share how God had created an opportunity for him to have a faith conversation with a truck driver. One time, he and his family took an anniversary trip or some sort of celebratory trip to somewhere tropical. When he got back, I heard nothing about the food. Uh, I heard nothing about the weather. I heard nothing about the beaches. I heard nothing about what they did, excursions that they did. The only thing that I knew about the trip was that the lady at the check-in desk prayed to receive Christ with him while he was sitting in a chair waiting for his wife at the spa. It didn't matter where he worked, wherever God put him, he was a missionary. Yes, God. It didn't matter where he went, he went as a missionary. It was just simply, yes, God. And and so I think about him, and, and he just is that picture of simple obedience to me. No notoriety, no recognition, no special job promotion. Was never asked to do anything that might be considered a, a position of honor. Just daily yes to Jesus and let the rest work itself out. Trusting Jesus to work the rest out is really that the mark that that uh, friend left on me. And, and so uh, let's circle back to Luke 1. 38, and what Mary says to this angel uh, when, when the angel is ready to depart, because I think this really just captures that simple obedience well. Uh, Luke 1, 38, you can imagine the questions Mary had. Uh, why me? How am I going to do this? Uh, remember that whole virgin part thing still, don't forget that. Um, what am I going to tell my friends? Uh, you know that I don't have any kids, and I don't know how to be a mom, and I don't know how to be a parent, right? You know that Joseph's my fiancé, not my husband yet. Uh, you know that neither of us have any clue what we're doing. Can't we have like five years of marriage first to kind of get our feet on the ground and then maybe have this happen? Um, all sorts of questions. Luke one thirty-eight, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. 
Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I know whose I am. And let it be to me according to your word. I know who's going to bring this about. Faith is taking God at his word. If he said it, he'll do it. You don't have to dig yourself out of your hole. You don't have to dig yourself out of your circumstances. We trust him. We lean on him. We believe that he will dig us out. He carries us. We're not walking. The question this morning is, where are you turning uh, when the path of life gets steep? Do you have someone to turn to? Do you have a relationship with the Lord where your first, your first impulse is to turn to him and say, carry me, and I'm sorry for getting down and trying to walk on my own. Carry me again, and keep carrying me, and please don't put me down. Where in your life with confusion, with discouragement, with setbacks, do you sort of need to refocus, reposition yourself, believing and trusting your head and your heart that he will do everything that he has said to do. Isn't that the journey of faith uh, with the Lord? A daily obedience, believing he is who he said he was. He will do what he said he would do, even when we can't see it. Even when it feels like we're going backwards, not forwards. Even if we're not sure when, where we're going. Believing he knows where we're going. He's good, even if he hasn't explained it all to us. Uh, if you're here this morning and you've not taken that step to begin a journey with him, to begin a simple obedience, to begin that following, I'd love to help explain from Scripture what that looks like. Um, pray that our response would be like Mary's. I don't have all the answers. May it be done as you have said. Let's pray. Lord, we invite your Spirit to to lead us uh, in ways that don't make sense and lead us to ways that don't pan out just like we think we ought, they ought to. We invite your spirit to lead us uh, down paths that even appear to be scary and, and have setbacks. We want your supernatural work to be done in our lives. We want our lives to matter for your purposes. We don't want to play it safe, even though that is our predisposition. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to be followers, uh, not leaders. We want to go where you have sent us, not what looks good uh, to us. So, Lord, would you, uh, would you intervene? Or would you speak to our hearts? Give us faith to say yes to one step. One step. Yes to obedience today, trusting you for the strength to do the same thing tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.